I don't belong here. Now don't you get me wrong, I like it here. It's just not my home. Hasn't been since that day long ago when I came back to life. A revenant. As soon as that happened, I realized I was now an alien. A citizen of another place. My time in this world was now a sojourn, as if I was living in exile from my native land. Now, I'm not complaining. Every day is full of joy, but there is that pang of longing to be done traveling and finally come home. I'm sure you know what I mean. This life may be short, but it's also a long, winding journey. All of us strangers are traveling the same road, coming up on every bend, not knowing what we'll find. If you want, you can walk with me for a while. I've been told I'm good company. Now come on, let's go get that horizon. You can call me Ransom. And this is the double R-A. Welcome, welcome, everybody, old and new listeners, to Season 3 of Ramblings of a Revenant Alien. We are coming to you from our new recording space in the inner sanctum of what I will call the homestead. Join me at the fireside, pull up a chair, grab something bold to drink, and settle on in. Whether you're flying high or riding low, this is a refuge for you. A little bit of wisdom, a little bit of blues, and this season much, much more. By the end, I hope and pray you come away with some light for your journey. And if you do, hold it high and pass it on. As I said, we are here in our new recording space. We got a new mic, we got new hardware, we got new sound damping materials, and we have a new location. As I said, we are here in the homestead. 
here at my place. And uh, as you'll notice <laughs> across this episode and across this season, I don't exactly have a pristine sound environment. You might hear the traffic outside. You might hear my wife on the phone because she works at home. You might hear the neighbors. You might hear the landscaping guys, you know, when they come by with their weed whackers and tree trimmers. And, you know, it's it's probably going to happen. But I had to move into a place where I had a little bit more, well, I needed more time. And it just takes a lot of time to pack up all your gear and go to a booth and set it up and record and then pack it up and pack it home. And it just was kind of limiting things. And I really wanted to give you all something more. I wanted to make something more and that needed more time. And so now we're here in the homestead and I'm excited for what this season is going to bring. So thanks for coming along. It's going to be worth the trip. Trust me. Well, enough of all that. What do you say we do some rambling, huh? Yeah? Let's go. Everyone needs an anchor. Life is, after all, a treacherous voyage across rough seas in search of a harbor, a place of rest shielded from the wind, an oasis of warmth and light. That oasis takes many forms within many modes, but one particular expression seems to dominate the mind of today. This question, who am I? From one vantage point, it's a bit of an odd query. <laughs> who are you? You're the one asking. You're the one looking out into the night. You're the one breathing and yearning and eating and grasping. But that's not terribly useful, as anyone knows who's explored this puzzle of identity. The question, who am I, is not simple. It contains a spectrum of near-infinite questions and answers. Like light contains all colors, even those we can't see. So, I give weight to this question. And, in 2021, I decided to explore it more deeply for myself. I hoped to find my own frame, to find words that could capture my experience of this world, that could offer my perspective on life back to humanity in the hopes it might bring good. Well, you can guess where I landed. Who am I? I am a revenant alien. If you're confused, it's okay. Let me explain. A revenant, for those who aren't terribly familiar, is most simply defined as someone who returns. It can refer to a human spirit come back after death, or even more horrifying, a reanimated undead corpse. Now why would I identify with such a thing? Well, the truth is that I believe I am someone who's returned. Someone who's come back. From darkness. From death. From the void. And now... I experience the rest of my life and my existence beyond it as a revenant. And an alien? Yeah, I feel like that one's a little closer to home for many. This is the sense we all have that we don't exactly belong where we are. We don't quite fit. We feel like a citizen of another place, be it physical or metaphysical, and we live with a feeling of otherness. For me, that otherness 
is actually a deep part of who I am. I see myself as one who stepped across an invisible border into another country and joined its citizenry, and in doing so, made myself a stranger to most people in the world around me. I walk in the present with future eyes. I hear and see things most can't. My spirit is anchored elsewhere, even as I strive to live fully in each present moment. It's an alien's experience, and part of the way I ease the pain of it is to own it. I don't belong here. Much as I love it and love the people, it's not my heart's home. I am a revenant alien. And there's actually another reason, very specific, very ancient, that makes me see myself this way. It began with a moment that transformed me and a journey that's continued the metamorphosis even up to right now. And I'll tell you all about it in a moment. But first, let me tell you a story. Zachary was a swindler. He was a cheat, and he hung out with cheats. About ten years back, he'd wormed his way into the position of commerce secretary of his little town, and in the ensuing decade, he had skimmed and extorted and shook down one constituent after another. Now, naturally, he kept the authorities well compensated for looking the other way, and thus built himself a tidy little empire. The only drawbacks were being hated by his fellow townsfolk, and having to be on his guard constantly, watching for rivals and angling for the advantage. That was a talent of his, though, so it wasn't that hard. He enjoyed the gamesmanship of it, he would tell his friends. It kept things interesting. What he wouldn't tell his friends, though, those fellow ne'er-do-wells, was about the growing sense of guilt that was gnawing on his soul. The more money he ripped from the hands of the helpless, the more their eyes, their fury and sorrow, their hate, dug into him. Truth was, he'd begun to hate himself. Of course, this drove him harder. He needed to exert more power, buy more luxuries, amass more wealth. That would silence the beast, he reasoned. How could a man, with all the good life had to offer, be anything but happy? Except that's what he was. Anything but happy. And it was in this unhappiness that a local news story caught his eye. There was a big tent revival coming into town that weekend. <laughs> Some up-and-coming preacher man who was setting the countryside abuzz with his powerful words and powerful life. People even said they came out of his meetings healed, though Zachary, of course, knew that to be hogwash. No doubt the rest of the man's message was equally BS. Still, the picture of the man in the paper, the way he was described, his words that they'd quoted, you know, Zachary couldn't bring himself to throw the paper out. He kept it open on his desk all that Thursday and Friday, even as he was squeezing more money out of the populace. He kept reading and rereading the words about change and turning around and becoming new. New. <laughs> Zachary liked the sound of that. He imagined being free of this growing inner monster that continuously shouted at him how worthless and wicked he was. Could this preacher man offer a way out of that? Zachary thought it over for a long moment. Then came to his senses. He knew what these preachers were about. A full offering plate. Piles of cash to build a house for the Lord. And also buy a private jet. Zachary smirked to himself as he imagined the 
call to give that would no doubt be aimed squarely at him, one of the wealthiest men in the town. Probably a waste of time to even go. Still. And that was how Zachary found himself perched on a low branch that Saturday, watching the preacher approaching the tent. Throngs of glad-handers and poor and, frankly, illiterate townsfolk swarmed him as a small cadre of bodyguards kept a path open for the man to move through. Zachary watched him and tried to read him, vacillating between cynicism and hope. Would this man say anything Zachary hadn't heard before? Would he even look in Zachary's direction? And it was at that moment that the man did. He looked right up at Zachary, sitting on the branch, and smiled with so much genuineness that Zachary couldn't help but smile back. Now, Zachary, what are you doing up there? The man said. Come on down. Why don't you come sit up front? After containing his shock and noticing all the flabbergasted and furious stares of the people around, Zachary managed, okay. He hopped down and followed the preacher man up the center aisle, trying to ignore the wave of whispers about how undeserving he was, the wonder at how a preacher could welcome such a low life. But the preacher man didn't seem to notice any of that. He just kept on smiling and greeting the crowd. Just as he was about to head on stage, he leaned over to Zachary and said, uh, By the way, you're taking me to lunch after this. Invite anyone you want. Sound good? Zachary nodded, slack-jawed, but overjoyed and he stayed that way nearly the whole message <laughs> he couldn't look aside couldn't believe what he was hearing couldn't believe the change he felt come over him as he drank in the words and let them soak his soul he was becoming new and that was why at that lunch with the preacher man and his entourage Zachary invited all his low-life friends the other cheats and swindlers and blackmailers and con men and in front of all of them, he promised to give back every dime he'd stolen or skimmed or ripped off four times over. Zachary felt so free he could cry. He could feel it in his bones. He was a revenant alien. You know, maybe you've heard of him. He actually lived a long time ago in a little town by the name of Jericho. And he actually didn't go by Zachary. Most people know him as Zacchaeus. And that preacher man, they call him Jesus of Nazareth. Which brings me back to now. I'm a lot like Zachary. Sure, maybe I haven't cheated people and bribed officials and stolen money, but I've hated people in my heart. I've objectified women. I've recoiled from the stranger. I've despised my kids and my wife and my fellow humans in fits of soaring pride. I know what that monster inside feels like. I've seen it in the mirror. I've felt its teeth like cold steel bars locking me inside the prison of its mouth. Like Zachary, I was desperate for a way out. And it was the words of Jesus and the reality of the change he can make in a person that broke open my prison doors. When I walked out into that freedom... I came back to life and changed forever. And the crazy thing is, it hasn't happened only once. You know, my first emergent was when I was very young, but in the year before envisioning my podcast, when lockdown swept the world, 
I became trapped in a new prison of bitterness, cynicism, and rage. Jesus freed me from that one, too. It took some doing, as I'd locked the door and wound the chains around myself personally, and thus had to work a little harder to undo them, but he was always there, giving me strength, never not loving me, always rooting for my freedom. And he's rooting for yours, too. And so am I. That's what my life is about. My words, my music, my podcast, my stories. I have no better tale to tell. No better song to sing. And my daily fire is to sing it well with as much intricate pathos and artistry and empathy as the original composer, God himself. I hope you like the tune. I hope it makes you new. I pray it brings you to life. podcast is about wisdom and blues, as you know, and I came to a realization as I began prepping season three. As much as I love the blues, my blues literature is so thin, (laughs) it's embarrassing. I only know the names and work of a few modern artists and almost nothing about the long, long line of blues players that they came from, beginning over a hundred years ago. Well, I thought to myself, this has to change, and right quick. (laughs) Hence a new initiative of the RA. Blues Lit. Every solo episode, I'll be highlighting a blues legend, sampling and discussing their music, and ruminating on the life they lived that produced it. And there's no better place to start than the one and only Robert Johnson. The first time I heard the name was in the title of a YouTube blues backing track by Andy Usher, which I'll link to in the show notes. Andy's stuff is great. But while I had no idea who Robert Johnson was, The track itself felt immediately familiar, and it's the slightly swingy, dominant sevenths, 1-4-1-4-5-4-1 blues progression everyone sort of knows. I associate it with down-home, rural, country-style blues, but I'd never really looked into the history. And standing tall in that history is a groundbreaking blues man named Robert Johnson. He was a pioneer in the evolution of a style called Delta Blues, named after the Mississippi Delta, where the genre developed. Take a listen to one of his famous tracks called (laughs) Ramblin' on My Mind. Take one. You hear it? That 
marching, bouncing, almost staccato guitar, fingers playing the bass, the melody, the rhythm, all at the same time. The wailing cry of a soul in pain, trying to find solace in song. That's what Robert Johnson brought to the blues in a way that captured the imagination, not only of the people that first heard him play, but later musicians like Eric Clapton, who were captivated by Johnson's art. So who was he? What drove him to pick up a guitar and craft music that we'd still be listening to almost 100 years later? Robert grew up in the southern United States, the grandchild of men and women who had been slaves. From all accounts, his boyhood was a rocky one, with his father, though not his biological father, fleeing a lynch mob his mother moving young Robert from place to place, and him only finding out about his true parentage later in his youth, which is when he took on the surname Johnson. It seems his interest in music started when he was very young. He strung three wires on the side of a barn using nails and would sneak off to pluck the strings instead of doing field work. While his musical ability kept on growing, it doesn't seem that it was a life he expected to live. He married at 18, ready to settle down to work the land, to have a family, and hang up his blues hat. Alas, it wasn't to be. His wife and baby died in childbirth. Robert's grief was crushing. Some say that was the moment that forged the man we all know today. Others tell a legend where he made a pact with the devil to become a blues man, while other accounts talk of Robert vanishing for a season where he studied under a teacher, then returned as a master. Part of his allure, I think, is the mystery surrounding his journey. In any case, even during his lifetime, his music was well-known in blues circles. He and other blues musicians would travel together, rent out halls, and perform while people would dance and drink and have a good time. Robert made his living on the road, and it seems like that was the way he wanted it. The music he was playing kept growing in popularity, and eventually, music producers took notice and brought Robert in to make the recordings that influenced so many and that we still have today. And check out the show notes if you want to hear some more. Now, I got most of my information from a documentary that I'll also link to in the show notes. And you know, Robert Johnson is a fascinating figure to me. You know, the documentary paints such a vivid, relatable picture of someone who grew up with sorrow, who experienced tragedy, and wove it all into powerful music that speaks across the ages. And he was by no means always the kind of person I'd want to emulate, he uh, stayed with different women in all the towns he visited, for instance. But knowing what he lost and what he fought to build after it, I feel like I understand him. Even more interesting to me is how much I love his music and the strains that came down from it over the years, even as I have experienced nowhere near the pain he did. I can hear the things he was trying to say, and I'm grateful for them. Yeah, that's the power of the blues, if you ask me. It's a form we can all understand. Because we've all had sorrow. And if we let it, that sorrow can unite us. So may it be. Okay, you ready to laugh? I'll admit, the show stays pretty mellow most of the time, which is fine. Yeah, but this season... I'm going to make sure to carve out a portion of every Double RA solo episode to give you a reason to guffaw, if I can. This week I got something special for you. Quick setup, and then we'll get to the funny. 
So I have this coffee mug that I love. It's a chunky mug, 12-ounce size, with a rustic blue gloss on it, a fat round base, and two white stripes running around the rim, matching the thick white handle and white interior. I bought it because it was on clearance, A, but B, more importantly, it looked like the kind of mug you'd find in a country cabin in the woods. You know the kind of cabin I mean, where it smells like old wood and fresh pine, where you wake up to the sun peeking in the window between the trees, where you drink your coffee surrounded by the quiet song of the forest. That's what this little mug makes me think of, and it strikes me that all of us have something similar in our lives, some artifact that connects us to the natural world, a fragment of the wild that helps us tap into that energy that we only get when we step outside our modern comforts and technology. Well, in that spirit, I want to read you a few excerpts from the first chapter of one of my favorite books, A Walk in the Woods, Rediscovering America on the Appalachian Trail by Bill Bryson. It was published back in 1998, but as you'll see, it still holds up, and I highly encourage you to put it on your reading list or your listening list if you're more into audiobooks. Well worth your time. So, here we go. Excerpts from A Walk in the Woods. Not long after I moved with my family to a small town in New Hampshire, I happened upon a path that vanished into a wood on the edge of town. A sign announced that this was no ordinary footpath, but the celebrated Appalachian Trail, running more than 2,100 miles along America's eastern seaboard through the serene and beckoning Appalachian Mountains. The AT is the granddaddy of long hikes. From Georgia to Maine, it wanders across 14 states through plump, comely hills whose very names, Blue Ridge, Smokies, Cumberlands, Green Mountains, White Mountains, seem an invitation to amble. Who could say the words, Great Smoky Mountains, or Shenandoah Valley, and not feel an urge, as the naturalist John Muir once put it, to throw a loaf of bread and a pound of tea in an old sack and jump over the back fence. And here it was, quite unexpectedly, meandering in a dangerously beguiling fashion through the pleasant New England community in which I had just settled. It seemed such an extraordinary notion that I could set off from home and walk 1,800 miles through woods to Georgia, or turn the other way, and clamber over the rough and stony white mountains to the fabled prow of Mount Katahdin, floating in forest 450 miles to the north in a wilderness few have seen. A little voice in my head said, Sounds neat. Let's do it. I formed a number of rationalizations. It would get me fit after years of waddlesome sloth. It would be an interesting and reflective way to reacquaint myself with the scale and beauty of my native land after nearly 20 years of living abroad. It will be useful, I wasn't quite sure in what way, but I was sure, nonetheless, to learn to fend for myself in the wilderness. When guys in camouflage pants and hunting hats sat around in the Four Acres Diner talking about fearsome things done out of doors, I would no longer have to feel like such a cupcake. I wanted a little of that swagger that comes with being able to gaze at a far horizon through eyes of chipped granite and say with a slow, manly sniff, Yeah, I've sh** in the woods. <laughs> oh, God, love you, Bill Bryson. Uh, any guy out there who has ever felt like he is uh, namby-pamby among seasoned veterans of any kind knows exactly what he's talking about. But as you'll see, Bill quickly finds out that uh, it's not going to be so simple as just taking a, quote, walk in the woods. The woods are actually trying to kill you. So Bill goes on to detail his discoveries about the potential dangers. 
Nearly everyone I talked to had some gruesome story involving a guileless acquaintance who had gone off hiking the trail with high hopes and new boots and come stumbling back two days later with a bobcat attached to his head, or dripping blood from an armless sleeve and whispering in a hoarse voice, BEAR! before sinking into a troubled unconsciousness. <laughs> the woods were full of peril. Rattlesnakes and water moccasins and nests of copperheads. Bobcats, bears, coyotes, wolves, and wild boar. Loony hillbillies destabilized by gross quantities of impure corn liquor and generations of profoundly unbiblical sex. Rabies-crazed skunks, raccoons and squirrels, merciless fire ants and ravening blackfly, poison ivy, poison sumac, poison oak, and poison salamanders. Even a scattering of moose lethally deranged by a parasitic worm that burrows a nest in their brains and befuddles them into chasing hapless hikers through remote sunny meadows and into glacial lakes. Literally unimaginable things could happen to you out there. I heard of a man who had stepped from his tent for a midnight pee and was swooped upon by a short-sighted hoot owl. The last he saw of his scalp, it was dangling from talons prettily silhouetted against a harvest moon, and of a young woman who was woken by a tickle across her belly and peered into her sleeping bag to find a copperhead bunking down in the warmth between her legs. I heard four separate stories, always related with a chuckle, of campers and bears sharing tents for a few confused and lively moments. Stories of people abruptly vaporized, weren't nothing left of them but a scorch mark, by body-sized bolts of lightning when caught in sudden storms on high ridge lines, of tents crushed beneath falling trees or eased off precipices on ball bearings of beaded rain and sent paragliding onto distant valley floors or swept away by the watery wall of a flash flood, of hikers beyond counting whose last experience was of trembling earth and the befuddled thought, Now what the... <laughs> Seriously, the Appalachian Trail is no joke. And I mean, if you read the rest of the book, you'll see what he means. But I just love this discovery portion of his journey. You get that initial fun idea, and then you're like, oh yeah, it'll be fun. Well... Do a little research. You may want to prepare or maybe even reevaluate whether you want to do it because Bill goes on. There are even more dangers to watch out for here on the trail. Then there were all the diseases one is vulnerable to in the woods. Giardi I'm going to do my best with these ones. Giardiasis, Eastern Equine Encephalitis, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Lyme Disease, Ehrlichiosis, Schistosomiasis, Brucellosis, and Shigellosis to offer but a sampling. Eastern equine encephalitis, caused by the prick of a mosquito, attacks the brain and central nervous system. If you're lucky, you can hope to spend the rest of your life propped in a chair with a bib around your neck, but generally, it will kill you. There is no known cure. No less arresting is Lyme disease, which comes from the bite of a tiny deer tick. If undetected, it can lie dormant in the human body for years before erupting in a positive fiesta of maladies. This is a disease for the person who wants to experience it all. The symptoms include, but are not limited to, Headaches, fatigue, fever, chills, shortness of breath, dizziness, shooting pains in the extremities, cardiac irregularities, facial paralysis, muscle spasms, severe mental impairment, loss of control of body functions, and, hardly surprising really, chronic depression. Then there was a little-known family of organisms called hantaviruses, which swarm in the microhaze above the feces of mice and rats and are hoovered into the human respiratory system by anyone unlucky enough to stick a breathing orifice near them by lying down, say, on a sleeping platform over which infested mice have recently scampered. 
1993, a single outbreak of hantavirus killed 32 people in the southwestern United States, and the following year, the disease claimed its first victim on the AT, when a hiker contracted it after sleeping in a, quote, rodent-infested shelter. All AT shelters are rodent-infested. Among viruses, only rabies, Ebola, and HIV are more certainly lethal. Again, there is no treatment. <laughs> so, so sunny, right? He goes on. Finally, this being America, there is the constant possibility of murder. At least nine hikers, the actual number depends on which uh, source you consult and how you define a hiker, have been murdered along the trail since 1974. Two young women would die while I was out there. Which, as you can see, means that he actually went on the trail, even despite all these dangers, which I think displays the power of the idea of getting out into nature. Like I was saying, these fragments of the wild that we need, that we need to energize us. That's one of the things I love so much about this book and why I think you should really read it. Anyway, so despite all the dangers, he decides to go, and that means he needs to go get some gear, which is also amusing and relatable, as we all know what it's like to uh, decide to go camping and realize, oh, wow, oh, wow, I need, I need a lot of stuff. Here's how Bryson describes it. My first inkling of just how daunting an undertaking it was to be came when I went to our local outfitters, the Dartmouth Co-op, to purchase equipment. My son had just gotten an after-school job there, so I was under strict instructions of good behavior. Specifically, I was not to say or do anything stupid, try on anything that would require me to expose my stomach, be conspicuously inattentive when a sales assistant was explaining the correct maintenance or aftercare of a product, and above all, don anything inappropriate, like a woman's ski hat, in an attempt to amuse. I was told to ask for Dave Mengel, because he had walked large parts of the trail himself and was something of an encyclopedia of outdoor knowledge. A kindly and deferential sort of fellow, Mengel could talk for perhaps four days solid, with interest, about any aspect of hiking equipment. I have never been so simultaneously impressed and bewildered. We spent a whole afternoon going through his stock. He would say things like, Now this has a 70 denier high-density abrasion-resistant fly with a ripstop weave. On the other hand, and I'll be frank with you here, and he would lean to me and reduce his voice to a low, candid tone, as if disclosing that it had once been arrested in a public toilet with a sailor. The seams are lap-filled rather than bias-taped, and the vestibule is a little cramped. I think because I had mentioned that I had done a bit of hiking in England, he assumed some measure of competence on my part. I didn't wish to alarm or disappoint him, so when he asked me questions like, What's your view on carbon fiber stays? I would shake my head with a rueful chuckle in recognition of the famous variability of views on this perennially thorny issue and say, You know, Dave, I've never been able to make up my mind on that one. What do you think? <laughs> right? This is an odd thing about human beings. It's not just men, although I think men are guilty of it more than women, is not wanting to look stupid, not being willing to ask questions, not wanting to look like we need to learn something. But this whole book is about Mr. Bryson learning something. And I think the things that he learns are things that we all could do to learn. Uh, I've learned a lot of things being an assistant scoutmaster from my son's Boy Scout troop, as uh, many of you may know. And I got to tell you, this camping adventure is great. But if you want a little bit of a taste before you give it a shot, uh, this book is a good place to go. Anyway, so Mr. Bryson, <laughs> he amasses a quite expensive pile of gear. He takes it home and does something that's actually very smart. He opens it up in his basement, make sure everything is there. Because, I mean, you never want to find out that your, your tent is missing a piece when you're trying to set it up in the rain in the middle of the wilderness. But I love the way he wraps up the chapter. It's a great kind of diving board for the rest of the book. Here's how it goes. I put the hands-free flashlight on my head. For the heck of it. 
and pulled the tent from its plastic packaging and erected it on the floor. I unfurled the self-inflating sleeping pad and pushed it inside and followed that with my fluffy new sleeping bag. Then I crawled in and lay there for quite a long time, trying out for size the expensive, confined, strangely new-smelling, entirely novel space that was soon to be my home away from home. I tried to imagine myself lying not in a basement beside the reassuring, cozily domesticated roar of the furnace, but rather outside, in a high mountain pass, listening to wind and tree noise, the lonely howl of dog-like creatures, the hoarse whisper of a Georgia mountain accent saying, Hey, Virgil, there's one over here. Y'all remember the rope? But I couldn't, really. I hadn't been in a space like this since I stopped making dens with blankets and card tables at about the age of nine. It was really quite snug, and once you got used to the smell, which I naively presumed would dissipate with time, and the fact that the fabric gave everything inside a sickly greenish pallor, like the glow off a radar screen, it was not so bad. A little claustrophobic, perhaps, a little odd-smelling, but cozy and sturdy, even so. This wouldn't be so bad, I told myself. <laughs> but secretly I knew that I was quite wrong. And that is the beginning of Mr. Bryson's tale of A Walk in the Woods. And I got to tell you, the, the pathos, the humanity, the laughs, the surprises, because he takes a friend along with him and he and that friend become closer in ways that he never expected, which is always what happens, I think, when we take trips with people outside the comforts of modern society. Anyway, that, my friends, is but a taste of the humor, wisdom, and thought-provoking words throughout this book. Hope you got a laugh and maybe, just maybe, a hankering to grab some gear and get out there yourself. And now, a very special guest ramble from one of my dear friends, singer, songwriter, performer, and recording artist, Keneath Perrin. Keneath, take it away. I recently uh, watched a video sermon by Marilyn Hickey. Uh, actually, I think it's almost like two months ago. Uh, right around Christmas time, but she was talking about partnering and partnering with God. And I thought it was really interesting because I feel like the word partner always indicates some type of business uh, type of relationship. And I guess it can also mean personal as well. But when it comes to people talking about collaborations and partnering, it always just kind of feels like it's supposed to be kind of more of a business type of mindset when you do that kind of thing. And I thought if we're partnering with God, that actually can be a lot more in depth than what we realize. Because one, not only are we working with our creator, two, we are actually learning about him as well as ourselves. And then three, there are times, I think, when the exchange between us and the Creator differ. For example, there may be times where we have to completely rely. I mean, we're supposed to rely on Him anyway, but there are certain circumstances where we just have to trust that He's doing what He's supposed to be doing, and He's doing what He promised to do, and He's doing what He's going to do and come through for us. Um, when we have faith in him. So it's almost like in the sense, we're just trusting the partner that we're with. And flip side, there are things that he's asking us to do as far as um, believing in him, 
that's our goal. And then other things that sometimes are more practical, like if we're supposed to receive healing, then maybe we should get more sleep, you know? And if he speaks to our spirit and says, okay, look, you need to go to bed like at 10 instead of 11 tomorrow. Just little practical things, even though we may not understand why, that's us doing our part of the partnership. So it, it's a very beautiful dynamic going between the two. But I just thought that was very interesting. Mm-mm. Good word, my friend. Thanks for bringing it to us. Everyone check out the show notes for a link to all Kenneth's latest doings and happenings and appearances and where you can follow him on the socials. And if you want to hear more of his wisdom, head on back to his interview episode from season two, which I'll also link to in the show notes. So, here we stand, at the precipice of the future, yours and mine. I hope you've enjoyed the upgrades to the podcast, and the new variety, the augmentations. Those of you who've stuck around for the past two years have slogged through a lot of unpolished material, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that you've walked beside me all this time. I hope you know that I've walked beside you too, and that you're not alone. As we come to the end of this first ramble, I want to leave you with a call to action. And it's a simple one, but it will demand your highest self. On the plus side, though, it will be your greatest adventure. And it's just three words. Live your story. Let me tell you what I mean. Why do I say story? Isn't real life just a series of events? As much as we all love a good tale, there's a common skepticism these days of anyone putting forth a narrative, especially a meta-narrative. The postmodern strain of philosophy has been shouting for 50 years or so that narratives are dangerous, that they're simply tools to exert power, singular points of view that all have equal validity, and that none, except for the postmodern narrative itself, of course, should be put on a pedestal. I understand where this train of thought comes from, and I wouldn't say it's completely useless, but I think it's ultimately self-contradictory and a dead end. In reality, we all need a story to tell ourselves, to give our lives and our days and our work meaning, because humans can't survive without meaning. Even if we don't know it, there is a story we're telling ourselves about our lives, about the world, about ultimate reality, and if we haven't thought that story through, then it's like we're in a boat with no steering wheel going God knows where. My point is, the story of your life should not be accidental, perfunctory, or a default. You must not give up the human right to choose what your life means, because that's a towering gift from God. And along those lines, you know He made you with intention. That's why it needs to be your story, because you trying to live someone else's story, or the story that is not you, is tragic, and not just because it leaves you unfulfilled, frustrated, maybe even numb, cynical, and despairing. It's tragic because God created you with a set of gifts and strengths and beauties inside that were always meant to come out and spread good in the world. So if you don't live them out, all that potential, all that glory remains muted, diffused, even lost, and the whole world is less for it. 
That's why I really want to encourage you to let God show you how He made you and dig into that. Know it. In one sense, learning to know how He made you can help you come to know Him. That's why I say, live your story. Jesus came to give us life to the full. He gave us a roadmap by the life He lived and the things He said. He gives us the power and He makes us the people as we follow Him who can actually sustain this incredible privilege of defining the edges of our existence authentically, truly, beautifully, with the deepest kind of goodness. I'm not saying you have to be something epic or famous or travel beyond the small town where you live. I'm just saying that there's a person you were created to become, and you have to become it on purpose. You have to choose to live. That's it. My call to action. Live your story. Find it, frame it, follow it. Me? I'm a revenant alien. You know, if you want, you could be too. All it takes is to follow your creator. I'm utterly convinced that he's a good and kind collaborator who will show you amazing things if you'll join him in the dream he has for you. If you need more detail on that, head to revenantalien.com searchers. It's a simple start, but a glorious journey. That's all I got for today. Stick around after the credits to hear a quick little preview of our next episode, an interview with a fatherhood coach named Steve Anderson. You won't want to miss it. Don't be a stranger. Godspeed. And I'll see you out there. of a Revenant Alien is created and produced by me, Ransom. All the music you heard today, except for the Robert Johnson excerpt, of course, is created by me as well. You can reach out to me at revenantalien.com contact, or find me on X, Instagram, Medium, and the Wisdom app, under at a Revenant Alien. I'm hosted by Spotify for Podcasters, who I cannot recommend enough. Special thanks to Alex at Sweetwater Sound, who helped me acquire all the new equipment for this season. To my wife, Suzanne, for all her support and love. To her dad, Russ, without whose help I wouldn't have the snazzy new recording space I do. And of course, to Jesus Messiah, who makes my life worth living, who created me to create and called me out to live. Here's to the future. It's going to be good. I could keep working with teens, right? I could keep working with men, or what if I go right to the source and work with men who have sons and daughters so they don't have to move in and end up needing work when they're 30, right? So I suppose that's the the emotional track that got me into working with dads. And I'm also, I've done different trainings. And, and so I'm working on a book, Neuroscience for Dads, hey, right? Because, yeah, so we can get that, under, I think understanding our brains 
right, can give us some insight into, you know, both what we need to be letting our kids know and also what can help us be the dads that we want to be.